You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. week's episode we were discussing world music by goat and the public decided that this record does make it into their discography so thank you very much to everybody who listened and voted this week we're trying something a little bit different and we will be discussing with the aid of a special guest algorithms spotify and all things artificial intelligence as it relates to music enjoy Hi, you're listening to the Song Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser, and fuck these two guys because we've got a guest. <laughs> <laughs> to my left is sitting Dr. Jason Costello. Uh, Jason, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've been playing music in Glasgow for a while. I remember a couple of bands. Is a while a scientific term? <laughs> <laughs> about 10 years. So yeah, <laughs> <Thank> a decade. <laughs> Uh, used to play in a band called Young Philadelphia with my younger brother Graham, who's now probably more kind of notorious for doing jazz stuff with his uh, band Strata. Um, also played did a tour of duty, I would say, with um, the band Outblinker, where I played guitar. Uh, and then more recently, I played bass for um, I did American, which is good fun. I suppose kind of parallel to that, um, rather than sort of trying to pursue the music thing, I've also worked in uh, software engineering, so that's kind of my day job. Um, so since around 2009, I've been working in the area of kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence and software development in a bunch of areas. So that's quite a vogue area nowadays for... So your, your PhD is nuclear engineering? That's true. So it's applying machine learning to various areas of nuclear engineering. Mm-hmm. It's probably more generally kind of energy engineering, to be honest, because nuclear is a bit of a kind of hot button topic as well. So mm-hmm. it was just specifically the area I looked at was applying to that, but it was kind of generic to actually reliability and safety for any kind of energy engineering, but it's trying to take artificial intelligence techniques and apply them to areas where there's lots of data to try and tell whether there's maybe faults or predict when things might fail. So this is interesting, right? Because Jason's obviously coming from a very, very academic background in this subject. Uh, Mark and David are two guys who on a daily basis utilise algorithms to try and do their jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, how how do they come into play with you guys? Well, I mean, I rely on... Uh, what Facebook thinks people like to sell them music that I hope they will buy. <laughs> yeah. It's a target marketing, events promotion, yeah. the, the, and very specific niche marketing, tagging, that kind of thing. Mm. One time I did spend about 45 minutes trying to tailor an advert just directly at you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I spent £4 on it. I'm not sure if it worked or not. Well, you know, that, that one of the. Can you tell me what it was? Uh, no. 
One of the big things in marketing is you need, you need to create a persona. So obviously, Chris uh, David had thought of the prior for persona, and that persona was Chris Cusack. Yeah, exactly. That's. I mean, I, I have seen a couple of things that I was surprised I saw. I don't know. If that's maybe it. <laughs> but I, I, without David, you know, spilling the beans here, I'm not going to know. It's did, a, long, did it's did a it long-term to... test. Is there, a re- is there a reason you can't tell me? I, well, there no, is. No, a I want to try it again, but it will work out eventually. All right, as you perfect it, and as yeah. the as the technology perfects, yeah, exactly. yeah. Mark. It's taken a deeply sinister turn already. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, what, what was the, I'm thinking any of the state, that Will Smith classic now. Um, what was the, uh, the term you mentioned just before we switched the recording device on SEO? Search engine optimization. Yes. Right. So Google. So, yeah, basically uh, my day job, I'm a, I, I'm a former social media manager. Now I'm a brand manager and uh, that, that kind of deals with, how you use, how you utilize social networks and, and Google to sell shit to people, or in this case, to try and get people to look at our content. So we'll then come and buy the services of the company that I work for. Um, so utilize Facebook's uh, own massive amounts of data using their, their ad backend, much like Dave does. And also more recently using Google's, well, trying to basically make our website and content appear higher up in Google by optimizing it for a search engine. So Jason, you're the best person I could think of to ask this question. Maybe the only person that was available. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Both these guys' jobs day to day are underwritten by algorithms. To to what extent, I mean, is Google entirely algorithmically dependent? I mean, just so people can understand, because I mean, I'm trying, we're trying to like, without being too insulting, trying to really explain what role algorithms are playing in these basic activities now yeah so in terms of i think probably more accurate to describe it as data driven than algorithm driven because an algorithm is just any set of it can be kind of even broadened to see any set of kind of computer instructions but the real value behind kind of how companies like google and facebook and stuff do their business is by number one storing all this data and then number two learning from it like empirically so just looking at the data and extracting features from it to then improve what they do tomorrow so gi- um, giant patterns that are absolutely yeah in, like that we can't necessarily observe, but uh, after there's maybe a dozen iterations of different patterns, you can start to hone in on incredibly specific defining characteristics and populations. Yep, definitely. Right. So and so obviously, uh, given the, the the title of the show that we're looking at uh, Spotify and algorithms and music, what we're trying to identify is what role are algorithms increasingly playing in our uh, perceptions of music, um, how it's delivered to us, how it's coming into being as well. Not just in terms of how it's created, which is an issue that we'll touch on, but in terms of what is getting commissioned and why is it getting commissioned? Are those decisions heavily informed? And I I think I'm kind of being rhetorical here because obviously we've spoken in the past, we spoke about it in the Threaten episode uh, to some extent, um, and we've talked about the way that the pop industry in a number of episodes, how the pop industry is now, the product is driven by the market as opposed to the market responding to the product. Now, in the, in the build up to this episode, Jason and I were talking over it and we talked about this, uh, what you described as an inflection point where the driver was no longer the audience trying to be challenged and follow tastes. It was that the, the products on display, the, product, the the choices available were increasingly, especially in terms of the mainstream, dictated by patterns within the audience. Is that is that how you see it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I mean, think you even look at the you look at the top forty fifteen years ago, 
top 40 singles and you'd see bands in there, you'd see pop artists, but you know, they were Radiohead, Radiohead, interesting pop artists, people doing weird things. And obviously there was a lot of shit, but that's fine. There's always been shit. But you then look 10 years ago, slightly less diverse. But then over the last 10 years, there's this sort of increasing feedback loop of just the same music becoming more and more apparent. And it, the diversity is completely gone in that sort of, even in the top 100, you look at the top 100 iTunes singles and all it is, is that sort of committee written pop mixed with nostalgia tracks. Uh, you know there'll be queen songs because there's a queen movie out and they're the pretty much the only things that aren't producers making you know so we're talking basically about homogenization about like a convergence of music yeah absolutely. to satisfy an increasingly narrow band of criteria mm-hmm. which are trying to maximize its its strike rate you know so you're trying to basically increase the the pound for pound ratio money wise of expenditure to return and sort of seek to use these huge data sets and these these incredibly powerful tools to try and minimize loss more more than anything to try and eradicate wastage and get as much as possible from from your investment so i mean that obviously that's something that's been going on for decades that's something that was going on in the 60s it was something that was going on right up through the 70s and 80s into the boy band era and the girl band era it was going on through the kind of the, the explosion of dance music to the to the that kind of tedious chart dance music that that, that really doesn't have anything special about it I saw her face It was it was incredibly crude and sort of ham-fisted in its attempts, and some of them really worked, and some of them really. But there was always an element of risk, a huge yeah. element of risk. It was very you know. primitive. Mm-hmm. But what we've seemed to have got to is this sort of point where there's like an exponential increase in the efficiency and the ability of that. I mean, Jason, do you think that's a technological advance thing? Well, I think even before the, you get to more advanced techniques or whatever, or, or uh, analytics informing how music is written. Uh, just the, the amount of information about how music's consumed has increased massively. So I suppose the charts have always driven music to, you know, that was almost the benchmark before 
Um, and that's a really crude indicator of, you know, in terms of record sales or whatever in the past. But now you've got so much kind of data and telemetry about things like Facebook impressions or YouTube hits or hits across numerous different platforms that there's a much more information to begin to try and aim for in order to be successful um, by, th- by those barometers. So, I mean, the, the manager, like Prince's manager, we've mentioned this guy a few times and his name totally escapes me right now, but he'd spoken about trying to, trying to pin it down to a time when this was starting to change, you know, for Prince's first couple of albums, he ended up like Warner spent something like seven million on him mm. just because they were investing in what they saw as a, a prospect. And there was no guaranteed return and he was given a lot of artistic freedom. Now, he speculated that that would never happen again, at least until there was some huge, you know, cataclysmic change in the industry. Because as the revenues dwindled, the ability to speculate in that fashion was going. And so with this shortage of money and the fact that people had to tighten their belts and A&R folks weren't getting the, you know, if you failed in your first two or three acquisitions, you were gone. This this kind of narrowing of the, of the loss margins also was facilitated by this rapid increase in, like you said, the huge data sets. And we're talking about data sets that are way more complicated than I think people give them credit for. So like we maybe think, you know, the charts told us this single sold the most, this single sold the second most. Mm-hmm. We're now talking about data sets. When did they pause this? When did they start it again? How long were the top, like exactly what length, average length of time were the top 30,000 songs of last year? What key were they in? What BPM were they? Who, who, who sang them? Who produced them? What instruments were used? Like, I mean, literally breaking these things down to this granular level of all these different components. And from that, being able to then reverse engineer a product that is based on the tiniest little increments of success as you see it from these huge data sets. I mean, am I, am I getting close with that? Definitely. And it's maybe not quite there yet in terms of massive, let's say, I mean, software houses replacing composers at this stage, but it's definitely not far away. Um, and this is sort of what we're going to get at with Mark, what you, talking about. You spoke about this with Netflix, right? Because that's, that's really just the same process that Netflix have been doing for a long time before they started creating their own products, right? When are people pausing films? When are people restarting them? I mean, that, that the whole, one of the things with, when it comes to these platforms is we like to think of them as being like, you know, Netflix is the film and TV platform. It's not, it's a big data company. You know, these are all big data companies. And yeah, I mean, it's the march towards efficiency, isn't it really? It's about the best, the best, most useful and profitable way for people to spend their money. So being able to get that data, you know, that you've just said, like when, how long a certain part lasts, who, how many people like this part, how many people like songs like this, with this kind of, and this key, with this BPM, that kind of thing. It's completely surprising that we're getting this. We're getting this far, you know. But it's interesting that it's not necessarily just like the sort of big data, big entertainment companies. But I've got a pal who's a producer at the BBC, and they use these methods because they can see exactly when people are tuning in and tuning out of even you know their sort of five minute little online content clips. Yeah, and they will tell an editor or content creator take out that bit because we know for a fact it hasn't worked on the last six times we can see the viewers drop you know so even you know in public service broadcasting that's uh you know affecting the content that is going out there we do it with this podcast 
Yeah, much, you know I mean? slower. <laughs> much to my chagrin, yeah. Yeah, 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 but it's true. You sort of, we react to the audience rather yeah. than just feed them what they th- should be fucking having. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, rather than what's good for them, we give them what the majority of them want. And that's sort of like having your dinner decided by your kid, maybe. Mm-hmm. There's a, an argument for that analogy. You know, we can't have fish fingers and beans every night, but it seems to be increasingly what's happening with music. You know, it's just this, like, I, I just want fish fingers and beans again, please. You know, and obviously people, I mean, there's studies that came out recently and I really wish I'd taken the time, given that we've got an academic with us, to note down the study that I'm citing, but I've not. So too bad. We don't get paid for this. Um, but there were studies that came out that said, even if you hear music that is almost exactly conforms to the criteria that you would define as being your criteria of music that you prefer, hearing a song that is less akin to your criteria, but is more familiar you, your body's reaction, your brain's reaction is that it is far more favorably disposed to familiar shit or familiar mediocrity than it is to new excellence. And this is part of this sort of scientific kind of background to the prominence of retro, you know, the prom- like the love of familiarity, the love of like eighties and nineties music, even stuff that we hated at the time, why we feel so disarmed and close and it's it's so easy to get into something familiar where uh, even if we hear something that is just absolutely brilliant and banging and will go on to become a favorite initially we may like it but our response is not i mean on a basic level on a kind of like neurons firing kind of level we are not responding to it as well as we do this familiarity and it's it's really so what we're finding is that this music is really playing to a fairly basic instinct of of, of human nature but you also find that I think with pop culture overall is it, it is becoming over-reliant on nostalgia and, you know, utilizing memories because it's, it's comfortable. And we as a Western civilization are just a little bit more afraid of new experience or companies selling us things are a little bit more afraid of selling us new experiences. The selling thing is quite interesting. I find it really jarring when you see all these like insurance companies selling things with like eighties, Kids cartoon stuff like Skeletor, yeah, exactly. Money Supermarket, whatever it is. Yeah, and it's, it's just, all just, you know, going back to that nostalgia. But also, uh, it may be nostalgia, and it, it, it truly will be nostalgia, but also they're doing exactly what we've just been talking about. You know what I mean? They're analysing an audience. Yeah, exactly. They're, fi- they're yeah, finding exactly. out about their purposes. They're finding out about their age. Do you know what I mean? Exactly what not, they want to see. Yeah. We're not afraid of it. Well, yeah, yeah, that Mark, is Mark's true. Mark's nailed it there, Especially the He-Man Skeletor thing is a perfect example because the people that grew up with He-Man and Skeletor are now getting home insurance and life insurance. And therefore, that is absolutely a great depiction of this big data in action. It it may seem slightly crude Mm -hmm. that we can identify it so readily, but definitely like what is the relevance of He-Man and Skeletor if not to appeal to that basic part of us that craves familiarity and comfort over anything? Now, I would would ask more than anything, do you think though, as the music, the conformity increases and the music becomes essentially more immediate, but perhaps lacks longevity? Do you think part of that 
is a form of built-in redundancy. So, I mean, for example, take like a Bohemian Rhapsody. We're not going to get that in this environment because it, it deviated so wildly from the norms of like your three, three and a half minute song, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, all that kind of thing. It's one of the reasons that Bohemian Rhapsody was such an anomaly mm-hmm. and is so memorable and timeless. A bit like, you know, like Paranoid Android as well. These mm-hmm. standout moments of flights of fancy that really pay off, but then have a huge amount of longevity. Do you think there's a level of built-in redundancy with these generic songs that, you know, the kind of songs you hear coming out of a BMW doesn't seem like that kind of music is going to be listened to for a particularly long time because it's replaced by something very, very similar, very, very quickly, which in turn seems to mean that there's a greater financial turnover because you're not sitting listening to records for like 10 years at a time and still finding them vibrant. You're increasingly having to invest in a diminishing market. They're forcing you to invest more regularly. Am I, am I just being paranoid? I think... Going about Alex Jones here. I think that's a... <laughs> I think that's a really tough thing to actually try and tease out, right? Because although a lot of songs are being made mechanically, and um, well, that is, you know, mechanically with computers or mechanically with, like, as we've spoken about before, like songwriting production houses, you know, basically the, just guys and people in rooms, like, making music and lyrics and just trying to get a hit out of that as well. Um, that's made for a specific, a specific kind of person. However, on the other hand, there's obviously a huge section of people that are, that are not into that music because guitar bands, bands that are doing interesting things, they just keep, it's harder and harder and harder than ever before to get, no, it's not just because of that, but also because there's more competition out there for bands, there's more bands trying to do things, you know what I mean? So I think it's, I think there's two ways to answer that question. The white noise effect. Yeah. Like it's not stopping, like it's not stopping people who go, I don't like that kind of music from going to listen to Bohemian Rhapsody and try to be like, you know, a pseudo queen band. And become I, I a fucking Greta Van Fleet or whatever, do you know what I mean? Like, I also think from like a cynical marketing perspective, a lot of record executives won't necessarily want to put money into a new artist every two years. They want that artist to just redevelop themselves and, you know, relaunch themselves. You know, that's why Katy Perry comes out with a new record mm-hmm. every yeah. 18 months um, and a new look and stuff like that. So there's not necessarily an inbuilt redundancy to the artist but there might be to the the product the product yeah I guess because the, the biggest expenditure as well is surely breaking the artist as opposed to yeah, once the artist is broken it get, acquires the momentum all of its own mm-hmm. you know it's just selling regardless of what it puts out even if objectively the quality of the material starts to deteriorate it still has a you know a guaranteed audience to, to some extent at least yeah. it's interesting though when you were like talking about like almost like low lifetime music that's kind of throwaway and transactional um, having I guess sort of less critical features to it, things that are that would stand the test of time. Going back to the Netflix example, um House of Cards was, was famously one of the most um well certainly successful, but was an analytics first driven output from Netflix as a, a production house. You know, they looked at I think from reading the article, they looked at things like political intrigue tends to be associated with these actors. So they they, they created the, the ensemble cast using that data mm-hmm. to then create this well regarded T V drama. Yeah, that's that's a, that's amazing. Mark, you you said it brilliantly when you said that Netflix is a data company as opposed to a video store. Okay, so we're talking about huge data sets and harvesting, and it's been talking about that in the context of music. There is no way we can't get dug into Spotify because it is the world leader in terms of streaming. Actually, weirdly, it's not the leader in the USA uh, where Apple Music's ahead of it, but globally, I think I think it's got something like a forty percent share. So I guess as regards Spotify, without getting too exhaustive, because there's loads of, you know, Wired articles and World Business Weekly 
articles on how Spotify works. You're talking about on the face of it, would you describe it as a program, a website, an organization, a company? Is it all of those? Yeah, I think so. Their main, I guess, a platform initially to distribute, I suppose, media files in, in the first instance. I mean, they, they've been around for a long time. I remember, God, it was ages ago when Spotify, years, you, you used, actually, when it first was launched, it used to be free and they had a whole host of issues with um, copyright and stuff. Copyright and mm. stuff, exactly. Was that, it was after Napster, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. And I so think Napster at the time may have been operating some paid trying to transition yeah, yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. to kind of new streaming world. I remember as well, when I first used it, it seemed kind of impossible because everything had been downloading MP3s. Um, I think at the time I was maybe back into using the iTunes store after having played about with things like, Na- uh, well, Napster, Kazaa and Torrents and things. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, if someone, I didn't even know what streaming was at the time. It seemed so kind of impossible given the bandwidth issues with internet at that yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. But um, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, a, it's been, a, kind of been a, around for a lot longer than maybe people well, the crazy thing is, so it's only been about since 2008. So it's it's one of those situations where it feels like a long time, but also it's not that long a time in that it's 10 years and it just, like, it, Sony just sold stock in it for $750 million and that was only a bit share. And you're talking about an enormous company. It's got 191 million users as of 2018. Apparently it's streaming about 60 billion hours of audio a year. Uh, which is about 8.2 billion different individual streams of music or podcasts or whatever. Um, it has 40 million songs, adds 20,000 a day, uh, around 4 million of which have never been played, supposedly. Um, apparently, by the way, Apple Music actually has a bigger library. Oh, yeah. um, There's a good and- podcast out there as well where they go through unplayed tracks on Spotify. That's crazy. Yeah, I've heard about that. 4 million unplayed songs. <laughs> there's, also, there's actually an automatic player, I can't remember the name of it, um, but you can you, you just go to a website and it will automatically like queue up tracks that have zero listeners yeah well, there's really one fun. of those for YouTube as well where it plays videos that only have one view excellent it's really really good um, uh, Pandora I believe is the third streaming site and that's in 30 million in it's uh, in it's catalogue or it's library Pandora's radio as well that's, that's an interesting aspect to that they were a kind of early innovator in the idea of recommendation and building playlists automatically yeah so I remember I, don't I believe... used to listen to Pandora yeah. a lot when I was at uni because they still had a UK licence then and it doesn't have a UK licence anymore and you'd put on like one artist and then it would play recommended yeah. sort of things and that, that kind of goes all the way back to some of the like like all music and epitonic Websites, so you simply went on, found the artist you wanted, and then the recommendation is dropped yeah, down. Yeah, Last FM as well. Yeah, Last FM, I, absolutely been a big one. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the scale of Spotify, I mean, Drake was streamed 8.2 billion times on Spotify in 2018. Yeah. They gon' tell the story, shit was different with me. God's plan. God's plan. I hold back sometimes I won't. Yeah. I feel good sometimes I don't. Like, he was the biggest of the year. Um, it claims to have paid out ten billion in royalties in total, albeit in 2017 it made five billion, uh, and the gross profit for the company was estimated at about one point five billion that year alone. Valued at nineteen billion, it's only got about four thousand and odd employees. It's available in sixty one countries. And an interesting thing about it, by the way, is everybody sees Spotify as being Swedish. You know, because it's, it's uh, registered in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. But that company, Spotify AB in Stockholm, is a subsidiary of a London company called Spotify Limited. And Spotify Limited is in itself a subsidiary of Spotify Technology SA, which is based in Luxembourg. So technically, Spotify is based in Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. 
financially for obvious reasons. Um, as I say, when it started, it gave all the major labels to try and curry favour with them. It gave them stocks in the company. Some of them have kept them. Some of them have sold them in part. Sony sold its shares last year for $750 million. The basic thing, of it, I mean, obviously Spotify meets with a lot of criticism. Still to this day, even with the increased revenues after the kind of outcry about it, a signed solo artist needs 1.2 million streams a month. And an unsigned artist where the record label isn't taking a huge bite needs 180,000 a month, but that's without any real backing or promotion mm-hmm. uh, to make a basic minimum wage. And then obviously if you've got a four member band, five member band, you have to scale that up. It's no small feat to generate an income from this site. And, and, and that's just, I mean, if you want to know more about Spotify, by all means, go and dig into it. Uh, there's a lot of numbers, some of them pretty staggering in their scale. And there's, a, there's a lot of news coming out right now. Um, and if you go and just like look for Spotify news, there's like things that are sort of led by their PR department and they've just signed a huge contract with Samsung that it'll appear on all of their phones and things like that. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's happening in the background right now is a lot of the main publishers and main record labels are uh, having a little fight with Amazon and Spotify and Apple and saying, we want to increase our take by 43%. And Apple Music have said, that's fine, you can do it. Amazon and Spotify are fighting it. And from the folk that I've spoken to that work in music, they think that Spotify might not necessarily come out of it financially you know in shape at all uh as big as they are they are still very reliant on the artists because without the artists they've currently got nothing because although we're going to be talking about how spotify are using ai to create music and create playlists and stuff like that they are completely reliant on human beings making music right now so this is really interesting very interesting balance right now it's it's fascinating though because see as you say that and i that makes a lot of sense. But Netflix also ran into a lot of problems akin to that. And Netflix's uh, way of coping with that mm-hmm. was to increase its investment in original content. Yeah. Um, and I think what we're really getting at here with this episode as well is that there seems like, you know, the question is obviously where is Spotify heading? With so much influence in the industry, not just Spotify, Amazon and Apple as well, but we're kind of using it as an avatar for both of them. Um, but with so much influence, where are they heading? What is this in aid of? They're not going to just stop and they're not just going to be like, in a in an industry like music with dwindling revenue, they they have to adapt to survive. They know that. And where is that adaptation going to take them? Um, and is it heading in that same direction as Netflix? If you look at their peers as well, I mean, Netflix originally began as a distribution, like distribution company in terms of physical DVDs. Yeah. They would post things out in the same way Love Film did in the UK. Um, and they've obviously innovated and pivoted towards what they're doing now in terms of, I suppose, originally the platform and then into this new original content creator and enabler and like a, effectively like a, um, like a film house, you know, funding the creation of new films and comedy specials and things like that. And then when you look at Spotify in terms of the, the other tech companies you mentioned there, so Amazon and Apple, they're massive companies which have a really diverse portfolio of things they do. So obviously yeah. Apple makes hardware, you know, high-end mobile phones, laptops and things like that. Amazon, obviously, not only do they provide streaming music, obviously they provide books and, they, you know, pretty much everything on Amazon nowadays in terms of, like, shopping. Mm-hmm. But they also provide a large share of Internet's cloud yeah. infrastructure. So yeah. Amazon Web Services actually is the main lion share of profit for Amazon nowadays. So if you take a company like, actually, Netflix, 
their entire compute structure is based on Amazon's hardware. So it's, it's interesting how they actually compete with them in terms of video streaming. Amazon Prime, Amazon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Amazon Prime, but then Amazon Web Services are, are the hardware that's, that provides Netflix's uh, service online. So Spotify, really, if you look in the context of that, have to do something because just providing this one service and not innovating and pivoting to somewhere new could, you know, in terms of 10 years time, they're going to really... Yeah, and it's, and it's really interesting that Apple have put themselves up as the sort of good guys in this fight. And then, yeah, Spotify are fighting their, their, their corner for, you know, not giving up that 44%. And to me, it seems like a fairly short-sighted thing unless they have a huge amount of faith in what they're going to do. And um, yeah, that's what's intriguing because surely they've got to side on the songwriter side at the moment because uh, that's where all the power lies. What, what is really fascinating, right, is also we're, we're recording this in the week that uh, Elizabeth Warren in the USA has... Come been out. going at Facebook. Sorry? She's been going at Facebook. Well, she's been going at all of them. Mm. She is wanting them to enforce antitrust laws to break up these big companies. Now, what's fascinating about that, you're talking about the potential waning fortunes of Spotify, but Jason's also just pointed out that Spotify is actually quite narrow in its field, whereas Amazon, Apple... Google, Facebook. Google, Facebook are very broad in their fields and therefore are probably more likely to be affected by antitrust laws than the likes of Spotify. Mm-hmm. So where, uh, as Jason says, with, with, the, with the, the cloud infrastructure being such a big part of Amazon, would it be more likely to give up its music streaming service? Probably. Would that then leave that market share to some extent open to Spotify? Probably. You know, th- so there are a lot of moving parts in this equation that whilst on, on one hand, yeah, this looks like it could happen, but there are a lot of other things happening at the same time. It's going to be interesting to see how that develops, clearly. But, you know, taking aside the possible ramifications of it, it does seem like Spotify is heading down that same road as Netflix. I mean, it has this massive, massive, massive amount of data on people and it has this ability to target and to refine and potentially to create from scratch. I, I do agree, but um, I think there are only really surface comparisons you can make between them because Netflix is... The entire way Netflix has evolved as a company and what they do now is quite different to how Spotify, because they're well, totally different medium, right? They are totally different medium, but I would say that music, by contrast to film, is a number of dimensions more simple than film to yeah, execute. Exactly, if yeah. you were trying to create music from scratch synthetically, it's far, far, far easier than to create Absolutely. A, a motion picture, especially yeah. certainly a motion picture that doesn't suffer from the kind of uncanny valley effect mm. of being just short of, you know, relatable. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So a surface, it's, it's kind of a surface comparison when you start to dig into it, you know what I mean? Like, it's going to, one is more possible than the other to achieve. Yeah, but I think mm. Netflix is already to some extent shown that it can start to achieve the much more complex one. It almost seems less of a feat for Spotify to try and achieve the music one. Now, I mean, certainly on a curation perspective, it's already doing it. Yeah, well, hugely. Yeah, so, Mark, you spoke about that in the Threaten episode about this situation in Sweden where they discovered all these playlists. Can you recap on that just a, a wee bit? Yeah, so basically, the, I suppose the, the key thing to take away from it is that I was doing some reading on this earlier on. There are many kind of chill out and relaxed playlists that have got a lot of songs on it from artists that only have like one or two tracks, but they have got like millions and millions and millions of plays. Even to this very day, that's still the case. Yeah. Many of these artists are either un- are either registered under pseudonyms or their names are actually different, but they're all 
like kind of registered as like copyright holders or you know yeah or part stuff, of like like con- Sweden consolidated writing mm-hmm. companies and stuff like that as well. Might as well be yeah <laughs> yeah and and that's and as you said they were all like based in Sweden mm-hmm. there was a it was at the Verge published a good article about this yeah. that sort of debunked it a wee bit mm-hmm. but it debunked it to the point where it was still like overwhelmingly Swedish based and there was there's no denying that there's something anomalous about mm-hmm. that at the very least. And Spotify's got employees all over the world, man. So just saying it's just saying some of the artists aren't in Sweden, it's not necessarily not necessarily saying that these are people who are doing the same thing, you know? Yeah. In other countries. Also true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just to backtrack a wee bit to try and illustrate the point that I think we're all going at here. Like before Spotify, right, the biggest ever study of music analytics was uh, a kind of joint venture between Imperial College London and Queen Mary University of London and they'd analysed in detail painstakingly <laughs> by human means uh, the various qualities uh, and quantities of 17,000 Billboard Hot 100 tunes between 1960 and 2010 they used this massive massive data set to try and find these norms and these averages of all these different songs and spot the anomalous outliers, the Bohemian Rhapsodies, but then also find the songs, which by the way, the Beatles were some of the most conformist that they could find. Even at the slightly more unorthodox times, they were right on trend with what was happening. Perhaps to some extent because the trend was following them, but that might be a little bit of wishful thinking for for Beatles fans. But with the numbers I was talking about earlier on, you know, with 191 million users, with 8.2 billion individual streams a year and rising, Spotify's data set absolutely dwarfs this. Mm. And I mean, Jason, you'll be the best person to say that exponentially the amount of insight that would give you. Yeah, definitely, because um, they've also actually... As well as the context of like these, I guess, publicly available data sets being curated, like the one you, the example you just gave there. Um, in 2014, uh, Spotify acquired a company called the Equinest, who where their entire product was a dashboard that provided analysis about not just the kind of uh, the social media or streaming context of music to, to help publishers and labels make choices about stuff. It was about the actual content of the music, so looking at the features surrounding individual tracks, so, you know, extracting tags from the actual audio files and things like that. What was the, the tagline of that group? Was it like, the Echo Nest powers all of today's best music experiences by automatically knowing everything about music? That's exactly correct. Yeah. Have you, have you, did you get a tattooed in your arm or something? Yeah. <laughs> it's just so dystopian, man. It's like really... Actually, in a similar vein, uh, their former CEO, I presume now he's a, amongst the machinery at Spotify, uh, Jim Lucchese. <laughs> the ghost also, in the machine? He was also also quoted as saying we should get good enough that you don't have to take your phone out of your pocket to provide good music mm-hmm. which is kind of a little bit spooky <laughs> um but yeah it's really interesting because so in software development often large data-based companies will provide something called an api which is just a it's a basically a url you can query with some parameters to that they'll provide information back um, and spotify's api if you provide a, an id for a, for a song it can provide back to you so anyone any member of the public um, some of these interesting features uh, that they've quantified, presumably using things like the Echo Nest as part of their, their kind of internal machinery. And some of the features that they use to quantify some of these pieces of music are things like tempo and time signature, which are kind of fairly obvious. There's also features like acousticness, uh, liveness, danceability. 
Um, so it's really weird things you would assume weren't really quantifiable, but in the context of having however many, you know, 300 million tracks that an organization like Spotify has, it becomes a relative uh, metric that's, that can, is kind of meaningful and quite useful. I know, we're going to probably, I know we're going to get into this probably quite shortly, but having that data available is actually quite is actually quite a good thing for people who create music, right? Because if you're creating like royalty-free music, for example, and it's going to make it much easier for you to create music which aligns to a certain need, which is going to make you a bit of money. You know what I mean? If, if you're looking for, for example, moods, if you've got like a film and you want like a bit, of, you've got a downbeat of the film, then all you do is like search for downbeat and then you'll be able to create music which is quite similar to that and you'll be able to sell that. You know what I mean? So algorithms can be used in conjunction as I create another creative side. I think the interesting point there is though, when you mentioned if you want to go and create royalty free music, that's true and probably is true for at least a short term kind of period. But what we're kind of getting to here is the idea that if you have everything quantified in kind of numbers, there's, there might be a point where there is no you to create that royalty-free music. It's not just uh, figures that you bring in and say, oh, that's an interesting sort of, you know, query as to see how I might go about creating this music. If you have enough information, um, then it can just automate the entire process of creating music in the first place and remove the composer in a traditional sense almost entirely. Yeah, there's people, there's, there's lots of services that do that already, although they don't really seem to get much past a minute, a minute and a half, before things start to sound like noise. Um, but that's that's already started. And I think for things like Royal Free Music, it does make sense. Um, and it just means that, I guess, people will start becoming, making their own versions of this software, which means, I guess, there'll be less less musicians and more developers. I mean, it might just <laughs> be, though, you know, there might be a spot, or it might be a new service, or Spotify becomes the go-to place for Royalty Free Music. And it's one monopoly that then provides yeah. all relative music for things like whatever you require your music for, a film, a podcast or whatever. Well, that links back to, what um, I guess, what Chris like, sort of brought up a little bit ago about like how there was songwriters at Spotify creating music and then, you know, s- selling it through production companies and then getting the, the money back from the royalties on Spotify. Spotify haven't become a production house for music yet, and that's the reason for that. It's probably for that very. It's probably for that very point. Do you know what I mean? Because it probably would be seen to be as people have now suspect these people who work at Spotify have created this music to go on these playlists. It's seen as being a bit well, they're gaming the system. So I don't think they could ever really go as far as being a production house. But it doesn't mean to say they can't do it through other means, like they have done with composers already, word- and they are doing a podcast as well. They're going to be doing the podcasts pretty much immediately. I think well, a, a word that I've heard referred to is astroturfing. Where mm-hmm. you are the person that's creating the content that then carpets your own platform. If you'll pardon the l- literal nature of my, my description there. If you are Spotify creating thousands and thousands of hours of ambient music to furnish hundreds and hundreds of ambient playlists to then generate your own revenue. If you are. They've not been proven to be doing it and they've denied it vehemently. But if they are then that's a problem. And likewise, so to some extent is the flat fee approach that they have been accused of taking, which is that they're paying a flat fee to producers to create. And this could be the people we're talking about. And this is a far more likely scenario, it seems at the moment, to get out of the kind of industrial espionage side of it. Um, because the, the risk they'd be taking versus the potential returns on creating these songs is makes it a little bit unlikely. But 
paying a flat fee to people to produce thousands of hours of ambient music and then them not being entitled to production royalties is a, is a real possibility. Mm. Likewise, the likelihood of Spotify and even the most advanced machine learning or machine listening was a phrase you used to me, Jason. Yeah, they're actually actively hiring for their machine listening team which is an interesting, presumably, I guess the context for that might be things like automatically determining when new content is perhaps too low quality to be put onto the platform or, or things of that nature. Maybe it's for, you know, maybe on the podcast side of things, mm-hmm. if they want to do the automatic transcription of podcasts, because they're obviously innovating into that area. then that's, a, I guess, a problem for algorithms to listen and then transcribe um, from a natural language processing perspective. But it is quite open-ended as well as the idea that yeah. why we want to really make computers listen to music. These things very rarely sit still. And I think the yeah. idea of as the machine listening thing progresses, it's probably quite unlikely that they'll attempt straight off the bat to write something from scratch, especially seeing as they'd be quite limited because it would have to be the simpler forms of music. It'd have to be ambient and sort of very simple electro and stuff that doesn't, you know, where the uncanny valley thing can be suppressed long enough. But certainly what they could do is write music that they then commission people to perform. Mm. And, you know, this is this is already a phenomenon. Mark, you, you sent me, um, is it Taryn Southern? Is that yep. the girl's uh-huh. name? Used to be, she was on American Idol. It's a former American yeah. Idol uh, participant who's now, I think she's released a second AI single, which is called Life Support. got an album which okay mm. she's got a full album she's got it? an album out yeah and it's like the, I know that the single had like an AI video as well yeah so um, I don't know how much did you read about that I, I didn't get into the weeds on it no. yeah so basically what it was is um, she created she, she basically used a thing called Amper which was in beta until October now you've got to buy it as like an enterprise license to use it so it's definitely aimed at production houses and mm. composers and stuff She's posted some things on, on that article, or I don't know if it was an article, but I definitely had an, a, one article where she posted some sa- samples of the songs that had come out of Amper, mm. and it sounded nothing like anywhere approaching decent music. And she just took them all out and then rearranged it. And made songs out of it and she said for every 30 ones that she would do she'd maybe get one she could use mm-hmm. and then that would turn then it'd be only like a minute and then she would turn that into like a three minute song yeah but we're talking that's that's a matter of refinement then mm-hmm. if, if the feat can be achieved even if the the initial rewards versus effort is quite low mm-hmm. that's just a matter of refinement clearly yeah. as with anything as with try to write boy band hits in the 1970s versus try to write boy band hits in 2010 it's it's a refinement thing you you improve the technology you you slowly become more efficient at, at that act it's so almost we, a curation problem there as opposed to the actual composition yeah. of music you look at all the outputs from whatever service sounds like an enterprise service where you literally just get the the data back and mm-hmm. then you cut and paste it in whichever way you want yeah um, which is kind of, to me, it's, there's, other, there's another interesting aspect to this as well, is that 
there's artists who've written music in this sort of traditional composition way where they've even say, say for example I'm maybe working in a genre like ambient techno or or, or dub techno or something like that and I've a, a host of like um, songs on a platform like Spotify or one of these platforms that then you're used to generate new music mm-hmm. you know I have signed some kind of uh, agreement for my music to be streamed um, on that service but there's an interesting aspect to the ownership of the, the features of that music which can then be used to generate new music you know I might not want my music to then be used as a and an, with an algorithm to create new music that's similar to it, and then who actually owns the various aspects of it? Yeah. I think, like, I know the answer to this question before I've you know kind of posited it. It is the, the platform, and there's not really much you can do about it if your music's up there already. But it does create an interesting dynamic to this, where it's you know if I'm going to want to distribute my music somewhere, and I know fine well that elements of that will then be used to create new kind of royalty free music. That's potentially something I may not want to do because mm-hmm. it's taking elements of my composition and then just yeah, it's writing it you out of business yeah, yeah exactly yeah it's yeah. automating my process of composition elsewhere mm-hmm. fundamentally I guess there's a reverse to that as well is, is also quite interesting you know because an algorithm is can only can only really be deployed you know in a certain way by a certain person so if somebody uses an algorithm to create music do they, can they then claim that they can they've, they've got a writing credit on that because their stuff's been taken and rearranged they then get a cut because it's, you know, their samples or a bit of their composition that goes in there. Yeah, you know, it, how, it, how deep is that rabbit hole go? It's a real grey area, like yeah. even in areas outside of the creative industry. So even areas like the search ranking associated with uh, like Google search results or where you end up in an Airbnb kind of search ranking and things like that. These are all powered by machine learning algorithms and there's no clear idea of like the culpability or ownership of what an algorithmic approach is taken and who then to, who's to blame for the wrong result being brought back or if someone says I want this to be removed from the, these search results you know it's, it's it's difficult to then go about kind of policing and auditing and things like that which is also why there's so, the companies are so incredibly protective of that technology as well as that in, intellectual property of those algorithms incredibly like scarily protective the interesting aspect as well is something from my kind of professional experience I've worked on a couple of kind of AI big data companies the real value actually in many ways is in some areas isn't the algorithms themselves, it's just the data set. The algorithms are sometimes quite simplistic, but the real enabling aspect is the data being used to then provide some value going forward. And it's the curation and kind of protection of that data that's the real sort of value driver for a lot of these big companies. Like Google in many ways, like they certainly have very advanced techniques now because they employ people with PhDs to go and see how they can make search results better by like a fraction of a percent each time and increase their ad revenue, AdWords uh, like spend back by kind of fractions of a percent. But at the end of the day, really the main driver behind kind of Google's value is the data they have about how people interact with the web Mm -hmm. and how the web is laid out and how it effectively interacts with itself like um, internally. So the structure of it and things like that. Um, that's their real value in many ways. So there's there's a kind of a way to kind of congeal this a little bit, and it's something you remarked when we first raised the issue of this, which is to say that all these huge, huge data sets, all this power, all this influence is it is at the disposal of these companies, and it's really quite staggering to think when you contrast it with that kind of Queen's College London study that, as you said, Jason, if you want to study music as a cultural phenomenon. You work at Spotify now, not at Harvard, not at Oxford Uni- University. The most impactful music research currently happening isn't coming from universities or, or labs. It's coming from privately owned companies. Yeah, but of course it has profit margins at the end of it, Yeah, which is the difference. You know, academia, the only goal is to find out the truth. <laughs> or, but you know, the interesting thing is, though, that 
what these data sets uh, ultimately concern are ways to, to some extent, to manipulate and cordon off and target populations. And that is, it's fascinating that the power, the greatest knowledge of that is now no longer in the hands of academic institutions mm-hmm. with any pretense of, of uh, impartiality or necessarily much of an ethical framework around it a sense of like uh, an obligation to uphold certain standards and values in the application that we've seen it with facebook more than anything mm. it's so amazingly glaringly illustrated by facebook but the these techniques and these this knowledge is transferable here we're talking about something that literally can then jump across like platform to platform area to area and that's 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 pretty alarming mm. in and of itself I don't think it's the end of music, though. I don't think we should get too... Uh, I mean, I, well, that, that was kind of going right back to Sunday. I mean, you you yeah. presumably think music is so intrinsically human and fundamental. That I, what I can see is maybe a separation of two different parts of music. I think music as an art and then music as a commodity. And I can see sort of background music, chill out music, any sort of experiential music... I could see that being created by AI in the future and songwriters not existing. And advert music will have the bit come in and blah, blah, blah. But art will always be an intrinsic part of the human experience. And audio art is music. And there will always be people, you know, who want to listen to and create noise. I think even personally, like, I I would never have, if you go back 10, 15 years, I would never have bought, like, a chill-out record. Yeah. I never listened to Mm chill-out music. But, you know, there's various genres of music I'm only really aware of, I'm a consumer of, because they're good to have on the background when I'm programming or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Those are exactly the kind of, um, and I guess they're stylistic, quite simplistic as well. So Mm -hmm. they're the first sort of... um, I guess the lowest hanging fruit that you might try and automate the creation of. So I definitely agree with you in that aspect. And I think as well, there's this weird feedback loop as well, where if if you begin taking more kind of feature rich or more complicated music and that's been automatically generated, for example, and then try and pass that off in the same way that, you know, like a record has come out in the past, you know, however many hundred years or whatever. Then people will just straight away say, "No, this is this is garbage." Like yeah. we're not going to, you know, we're not going to see like an AI perform live. This is, yeah, this yeah, is crap. Yeah. yeah, I think there's two side, two things that arise from that. First of all, is that we've been dealing with data-driven music for a long time. Max Martin and Doctor Luke are primitive versions of an algorithm. Mm-hmm. They're humans trying to do their best attempt at capturing the formula, at, you know, bottling the lightning of like how to write a hit single every single time. And to be fair, some of them have mm-hmm. come pretty pretty scarily close and even that's just an evolution of marketing yeah which has been going on since you know the 60s this is that we're talking about a process of refinement these guys ironically are the ones that face obsolescence at the hands of AI. The, 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 the thing is though, with so many musicians, not just Max Martin and Dr. Luke, who I couldn't give less of a shit about, but there's such a lack of revenue in music. So many musicians are dependent on things like uh, 
sync royalties, you know, publishing, that is for, for many people, their key revenue stream now. And if that disappears, you know, if, if the people who make money from sports scene or match of the day, the people that make money from uh, elevator music, cafes, background stuff, the, the incidental music that the PRS and uh, what PPL and all those guys pay out, mm-hmm. that keeps a lot of people afloat when that disappears because it's a one-stop shop where you buy you pay a flat fee and you buy background music bespoke from an ai that revenue stream is going to go and that's going to further yeah but i think the market will balance itself out there because i think then people will spend less on incidental music as it becomes more ai generated and there's there are less sort of mouths to feed there you know physical mouths and then people spend more money on live music and more money well, has on... Has that shown to be the case? Well, it's shown to be yeah. the case in other industries. I mean, if you think about the way that it's through industrialization and automation, the way that it happens, it may, it may make people redundant, but it also creates other jobs for other people to do. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to think that was a self-correct... I'm not, I'm not saying it's completely like one-for-one one comparison, but it's still, it doesn't... doesn't result in whole scale redundancy of a thing yeah I mean I think and, and clearly I've got a slightly more pessimistic outlook on it but I don't think necessarily that has borne out I think at a certain level people are now willing to spend £150 on a concert ticket where they used to only spend 30 mm-hmm. that's great if you're playing the Hydro and the SECC or whatever but at the low level of music we've seen it on an anecdotal level but we've seen it over the piece the, the constant discussion now is that small venues are dying and it's because the exposure to low level level artists is less because the, the the narrowing of the revenue stream has led to a, a tighter constraint about what can be played. I mean, you do not get artists on Radio 1 anymore that you used to get. You do not get artists. You don't have a John Peel equivalent. You don't have these things happening. Mm-hmm. So the low, the low level artists just are not there. We have to. We can't decontextualize this whole thing here. So yeah, you're saying that as more meaningless, tedious, incidental music uh, is thrust into the environment, and we become kind of inured to it, we seek out stuff that's more challenging. Um, I'm I'm not convinced that's the case at all, to be honest. Because the fact is that musicians need a basic income not to stay alive. They probably have other jobs, but in order to be able to keep doing what they're doing and again anecdotally as a promoter for 20 years I've seen increasing numbers of musicians strangled out of it we don't sell merch anymore people have no inherent notion of value on music as a product anymore that entire ecosystem is collapsing that is the B population of music right now and whilst there's still elephants lumbering about in the wild and we're trying to keep them alive um, and we're paying £150 a ticket to see them the the Mm. insects that pollinate this whole big scene are not there. And that, that really is a scenario. And if even the mid-level writers, the the, the, the publishing dependent writers um, who are doing electro one thing, but also making money producing stuff on the other thing, like when they start to lose their revenue streams, you're starting to lose your middle class as well. I, I, I don't share that that sense of everything will work out fine. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure everything is going to work out okay, but I'm just saying I think there's going to be more of a balance than... The, the maybe you're seeing um, well I mean it's well I mean I mean overall we're all fucked anyway well the thing is as yeah. well man <laughs> we're all going to get eaten by little nano robots in the next 20 years I think <laughs> as as is the connected the benchmark of capitalism as as people charge 150 pounds for a ticket to the hydro 
people are less inclined to spend five pounds for a ticket somewhere else because they've just spent 150 pounds to the one ticket that month at the hydro. So this 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 comes this economy comes at a cost, and that cost is always borne by the people at the bottom. And I mean, obviously, Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon, in and of themselves, have taken away the biggest revenue stream, which was at the time material music products, records, series. I know records have had a bit of a resurgence, but it's not made up for the loss of revenue from like CDs and material hard copies of things. I, I just don't see that balance. It seems like the money is draining upwards and, and I'm not convinced that that's, that's going to self-correct at all. I think the money is certainly going upwards. So I would agree with that, but I'm not quite sure that it's the songwriting part that is the issue at the moment you know in terms of live music is draining upwards towards massive artists but but, yeah, both, anyway. but spotify has exacerbated that effect and i think as it starts filling in all these little jobs all these like the incidental music and sports shows and adverts and the background of hollyoaks as that starts to become far cheaper for the producers of those shows they'll do it because they're not they're not a charity they're, they they have a cheaper option they will do that i think everybody's just gonna have to start listening to jazz now because <laughs> that cannot be AI'd <laughs> So to finish this um, And it's been a lot of fun But I've got one last proposition Right As a logical or I say logical As a possible conclusion Right The idea was floated What if Assuming AI As a writing tool Develops to such a Such an extent That it's able to compose Music that is As you said Even if it's kind of Ambient chill And lo-fi electro Whatever What if it develops to such a point That you can have AI radio stations. So literally say you had a hundred bandwidths and you basically, rather than choosing a song you liked, you had a particular AI that you liked because that station was reliably in keeping with the vibe you needed for that thing. And we were just talking about a 24 hour automatically generated cycle of music mm-hmm. that evolves and flows on a certain theme. I mean, is, is that absurd? No, definitely not. No. I mean, that kind of exists already in many ways because I mean, as in like the examples you gave, the sort of more simplistic genres, like the kind of ambient chill out music, that's already a thing. But do you mean and more kind of... Uh, you mean written from scratch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. There's actually, there's a, there's maybe not even on the um, the machine learning side of things, but on the kind of algorithmic generation side of music, there's a, there's a really interesting project online called Listen to Wikipedia. I don't know if anyone's mm-hmm. familiar with this. Uh, the URL is listen.hatnote.com and basically it generates music as people edit Wikipedia. So if someone adds to a page, it plays a certain tone. If it takes away from a page, <laughs> it adds a certain other tone and then the tone changes based on the size of the edit. It's actually really good when you listen to it. It's like really good background music to put on. It's very, very kind of like chill out, very relaxing. But to answer your question, like that's definitely not difficult to envisage at all. Yeah. Um, so really, then all you're talking about is a process of refinement as the as the technology improves and the uncanny valley is is narrowed. Then you can broach into more and more complicated genres. That's also not going to replace original music because a huge part of 
what people love about music is its attachment to place to other senses to memory and mm. you're not what you're not going to want to hear new music all the time people don't want to listen to things that they've never heard before all the time as much as you're into new music you then want to go back well, and listen to music that's attached to a previous time or a space i definitely agree to, with you but i would imagine when people first brought out the idea of recording music and it being listened to on record it would have been that initial well there's no point in listening to it because you're not there in the first place listen to like a live performance so there's yeah. some denigration of it in that aspect so to Chris's point, I think the further and further these things become more advanced and the further we get in time from it only being a performance-based art form, then yeah, yeah, yeah. I can definitely see it being diluted. I yeah, mean, man, even- I think that's like, I do think as well, it, what's the name of that test where you basically to see if any, an AI passes the test? Turing test. Turing test, yeah. The Turing test, right. So I think you're also talking about a sort of musical version of the Turing test. What you're, you're, we're talking about maybe underestimating the sophistication of the AI. If it can get to a point where the voices are able to be synthesized, therefore the lyrical content can be synthesized, therefore the music, the lyrics can all be synthesized. I mean, most, most bands now it, in certain genres are recording through digital rigs anyway. So you literally get to a point where you can build up the entire track and the vocals and the lyrics with increasingly sophisticated software. Yamaha, revolutionizing singing. Human beings are still singing? We're in the digital age. If- I think you're really just talking about a process of sophistication rather than uh, a process of, will we just reject it inherently? I think there'll come a point where we can't tell. That's the point I'm making. I think there will be a point where we can't tell, especially as music isn't responsive. So with the Turing test, you're, it's inquisitive, it's interactive. Music's passive, really. So it's much easier to fake that. And I think that's really just a, a case of refinement again. I'm using that word a lot. I think I'll always, like, I, I can't envisage a time where I'm going to not care about the kind of provenance or origin of a piece of music. I'll always take value in understanding the artist. And um, I mean, that's not true of all kind of piece of music I listen to, but certainly the albums I'm most passionate about, I want to learn about the artist. I want to go and see the artist live. Um, I want to learn about the context the music was composed in, but I'm not sure that's going to necessarily be the case for my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, generations down the line. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Do you know Which what I did? Which is quite sad. That's interesting. I did uh, an AI Nexus. Mm-hmm. You did an AI Nexus? <laughs> for fuck's sake. All right. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. It's the Unsung Podcast. Dave Gromexus need to find a way to connect the show to that guy. For playing in Nirvana, to hanging with Obama. He knows lots of folk, so stands to reason we'll find a way. It's the Unsung Podcast.
Dave Grohl's a robot. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, right, so have you heard of Emily Howell? No, no. Have you not heard of Emily Howell either? Emily Howell uh, is a programme that was written by David Cope. You know David Cope? Fucking hell, this is brilliant. Okay, so basically Emily Emily Hill is like an interactive interface and it's based on latent semantic analysis. Yeah? Great. Yeah, he's not <laughs> your word for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Emily Hill is isn't a person. It's just just this 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 interface that has been writing music and eventually got to the point where there was an album released by Emily Hill called From Darkness, Light. Um, this was released on Centaur Records, which is like a hugely respected and one of the oldest classical music labels in the United States. They, they were so, so impressed with this project that uh, David Cope had been working on. Um, Centaur Records uh, also released the work of a guy called Amit Pillhead, who's like a six foot five cellist uh, who's been doing classical stuff in Centaur for a while. Um, Amit Pellad uh, wrote and released a children's book a while back called A Cello Named Pablo and that book was illustrated by an Israeli artist called Avi Katz. Um, Avi Katz was a cartoonist for the Jerusalem Post for many, many years uh, until 2018 when uh, he was fired for depicting Benjamin Netanyahu and his entourage as a group of pigs. Uh, very offensive uh, if you're Jewish especially mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu in February 2019 <laughs> Big BB struck up a coalition uh, in the Likud with uh, a party called Otsma Yehudit which means the Jewish Power Party uh, who are extremely racist extremely racist mm-hmm. uh, I mean you're talking like some people drew the analogy of the KKK mm-hmm. uh, in America uh, who are disciples of a guy called Rabbi Meyer Kahane uh, who was originally designated as a terrorist by the FBI and the FBI once caught and jailed a stalker who had a map of Dave Grohl's house and had <laughs> plans to kill him and then kill herself. Well, well there and you AI are. Nexus guys. Thanks for that. That's <laughs> beautiful. All right, you guys ready? Are you ready? <laughs> Did you know uh, Trent Reznor was for Apple Music? Yeah, he's like one of the directors, isn't he? That's right. Yeah, yeah. that would have been an easier link, but sure. Yeah, I was going to say. That's <laughs> <laughs> a Mark Nexus, Jason. Yeah. You're just here, um, right? Well, I mean, thanks so much for coming along, man. It was great. It was great to have somebody that actually knows what they're talking about while we're all spitballing ideas around the room. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure. I don't see it being as much a dystopian vision, vision as you do, but I'm not as cynical as you. So, I mean, I've been proved right on basically everything so far. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, uh, do you have anything to plug? 
Yeah, not really, no. Cool, we can cut that out then. Just come and see the American record. <laughs> Jason doesn't have a book to sell, which is really unusual for somebody appearing on a podcast. But yeah, thanks, uh, Dr. Jason Costello. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, we it's hope you enjoyed pleasure. that sort of slightly unorthodox episode. We'll try and find an excuse to cut music in it at some point. Um, I'm sure. And we'll be back next week with an album as yet undecided. We'll consult uh, the Oracle. Emily Howell. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, folks. Good night. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.